ask you to do is they ask you to write down the amount of money that you counted on a piece of paper and then you turn it in and then your goal is kind of to, to actually like write down the number of quarters that you counted. Of course, if you've been awake counting quarters for 24 hours, there's like a really large margin for error on this. Okay, so you understand. Um, so, then, so then what happens is that they bring these people out on stage at the end of the 24 hours and they make them compete for different things. Uh, they, they do like sort of reaction time tests and a bunch of different things. And these people all have to compete against each other. And there are different times where they have the option, like if they didn't think they did well in the competition, they can actually opt out for a small portion of money. Or if they stick in, if they stick in and they actually win, they have the, the opportunity to win a million dollars. So like this is, this is the extreme spectrum. Now, one thing that I know is if I've ever seen people who um, are tired, are, are physically drained, uh, they tend to be emotional, right? right? And then if we look at money and say, yes, we tend to be emotional about money as well, you combine these two things and you get these people who are overtired on stage competing and they're like, they're exhilarated, they're excited, they're like weeping tears of like loss every time that they, they lose this money. And, and so what you have is this whole range of emotions going back and forth with these people who are just like, they're, they're so emotional over money and they're hoping that they'll get something right? So this is, this is what uh, money can do to our emotions. Actually, wealth, wealth has the ability to hijack our emotions, to take us uh, to places that we don't really love to go. In fact, when it does hijack our emotions, what happens is that we will make decisions, like emotional decisions, because wealth has hijacked our emotions, right? So, uh, so if you want to watch somebody's demeanor, drop really quickly, what you do is in tax season, you send them into the tax office, and then they find out that, oh, um, I owe perhaps thousands of dollars in taxes, right? I have to pay thousands of dollars worth of money. Those people who went in, uh, maybe in, in one emotional state, definitely came out in a different emotional state, because they have to now pay thousands of dollars. This is the power that, that money has over our emotions. So I, I want to ask the question, what is wealth to us and why does it have such a strong control over our emotions? So I, wanna, I want you to consider something uh, with me for just a second. Highly emotional people, um, and I can, I can raise my hand and put myself into this category, um, highly emotional people can sometimes be referred to as insecure so insecurity is a word that we might use in relation to highly emotional people. And I'm one of those insecure people, by the way. You may not know this about me. I may not show it really well. John Powell, he's like, no, man, no, that's not true. But it's true. It's true. There's, there's insecurity in my heart, and that leads me to be, you can ask my wife about this afterwards, and she will give you the affirmative on this. This leads me to, at times, let my emotions get out of control, right? So this is what happens with insecurity. So if there's a relationship between emotions and security, so relationship between emotions and security, and wealth is somehow tied to our emotions, then there is a relationship between wealth and security. In fact, I would say a core human operating procedure for us is that we tend to think that wealth equals security. We tend to think that wealth equals security. So if we have enough of it, like, if I have enough of that, I can actually secure for myself maybe the first level of basic needs. 
I can get food and comfort and shelter, and I can, I can get clothes for myself. I can kind of get those basic things. And then there's like a next level. I can actually get certain wants, right? So I can have some toys maybe that I like to enjoy. I can, uh, I can maybe get myself some social inclusion in different places. Maybe I can get some entertainment for myself. That's the, that's the next level. And then the next level after that is what I call the good life. The good life. You guys know about the good life, right? Like the life that just says, oh, I just want to take it easy. I want to go on the beach, relax. Uh, just live out my days. Uh, I, wa- I want uh, to be carefree in my life. I want a sense of luxury, right? If I can get enough money, I can get the good life. And that's kind of what we believe. So, so uh, what we might say then is, if I have enough, then fill in the blank. If I have enough, then fill in the blank. And, and, and that blank might be whatever your dream of having enough is, uh, maybe, maybe it's uh, my life, my life could be intact. So maybe I'm at a place where because I don't have enough, things in my life are falling apart. But if I have enough, then my life could be intact. Or maybe, maybe I could even thrive in my life. So we get excited about the possibilities of having more, right? But then there's a flip side to that. The flip side is if I don't have enough, then fill in the blank. What happens if we don't have enough? Maybe our life starts to fall apart. Maybe we might not survive if we don't have enough. And so we can go to this place that is maybe depressed, maybe hopeless. And this is the sway that money can take us on. This is the emotional spectrum that we can walk in in relationship to money. So I want to I talk to you about somebody. I want to introduce you to a person. His name is Luke. Luke is a physician, and he wrote the book of Oh, very good. He wrote the book of Luke. Okay, he wrote the book of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts are like one big book. One big book. And, and what he's doing, he has, he has a couple of audiences that he's trying to address. And what Luke does is, is, at the time that he's writing, he's looking at the church, he's looking at the people of God, and there are some really specific discipleship concerns that he has for them. There's some things he really wants to address for them. And so, uh, so in his book, he focuses in on these discipleship concerns and the ways that he structures things. So one of, the, one of the discipleship concerns that Luke has, one of the things that we see come up really, really frequently in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts is the issue of money. Money keeps rising to the top again and again. We see it in Jesus' words. By the way, Jesus cared a lot about how we use our money. He was really concerned with that. And Luke, in particular, he highlights those concerns of Jesus. But then from there, like, he actually, we take it through into the church, the early church, and how they used money. So anybody remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? That is a a story about money, about how, what our relationship to money is. You have all of these people coming together. They're coming up uh, to, to offer. They're saying, everything I have, my land, my property, everything, it's all in the hands of the church. All of these people are lining up in the church. They believe in Jesus, and they want to give everything to the hands of the church so that the church, uh, like together, we will share in our resources, right? And so you got Ananias and Sapphira, and they, they walk up to the altar, and they say, yes, we're giving everything. We're giving it all, but they didn't give it all. They didn't. They actually lied about what they were giving, and then God struck them dead. And that's the lesson. So, so we don't want to lie about our finances, right? Because God will strike us dead, 
Okay, okay, so that's, that's the moral today. You can take that home with you. We're done, we can back up. Uh, um, but that's, that's what he was doing. He was, he was addressing these discipleship issues, particularly in relation to money. So we're in Luke 12 this morning. And Luke 12 is all about a particular thing called security. So, so uh, Luke, in, in chapter 12, he hyper-focuses on fear and anxiety and so the counteraction to fear and anxiety is security. The whole chapter is about these things. He, take, he takes different lenses of Jesus' words about these things. And here in the middle of Luke 12, we have this parable. He puts us in a place, Luke actually puts us in a place where Jesus is now speaking to us. And he's forcing us to think about fear, anxiety, and security in relationship to our wealth. He's forcing us to to consider what our wealth has to do with the realm of fear, anxiety, and security. So we're in Luke 12, verse 13. And it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, so there's something unique going on. Um, What would happen often in the Jewish world is that when uh, Jewish people had matters that they needed to resolve according to the law, uh, they would go to rabbis to adjudicate those things. Rabbis would actually make the decisions and help them to judge rightly on, on how, what the proper ap- application of the law is in, in this context. And so when he's talking about dividing the inheritance, he's actually talking about inheritance laws. So in Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17, we have an inheritance law. Now, um, the way uh, law works in the ancient Near East is they don't exactly just say the law, but actually what they do is they show an application of the law, maybe even an extreme application of the law, so that whoever's trying to figure out how to apply the law to different circumstances actually has a, a way to figure that out. So they're not just stating it, but they're, they're actually providing a situation to apply it to. And that's what we have here. We have actually a really unique situation where if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn. And that's the law right there. That's the law. So they give us this really unique situation where a man has two wives and he likes one more than the other one, right? So this is a unique situation, but we're trying to determine the application of the law. And the application, the law itself is, he shall acknowledge the firstborn. That's the line. And in this case, he even acknowledges the, the, the firstborn when it's with the, the wife that he doesn't love as much, right? That's how the, the law applies in this situation. By giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Okay, so this is how this law works. I know we have that weird thing where a guy has two wives and he loves one more than the other one. We're not going to even worry about that right now because that's not what we're here for. We're talking about money. And so... Uh, so this guy, this guy comes to Jesus and he's evaluating the law. And uh, what we can infer from the context is that the guy probably is not a firstborn. 
He's probably not a firstborn, but, but his father has died and left an inheritance, and he's now gone to his brother, and he wants his brother to give him his portion of the inheritance. Now, his brother's the firstborn. The brother has the double portion, right? But he's still waiting on his portion. This is typically what would happen in uh, this time, is that, that brothers would actually live with, that younger brothers would actually live with their older brothers, that's how they would receive their inheritance. They would receive it through their, their brothers. In some instances, when a younger brother chose not to do that, they could take their portion of the inheritance and leave. But this was apparently a pretty hairy issue. It was not clearly cut and dry. And so, um, so it's really kind of uncertain what the application of the law is in this instance. And so, so this guy, he's, he's going and he's saying, Jesus... I deserve something, and I want you to tell my brother about it. So whenever you get in a position of saying, Jesus, I deserve something, we might want to watch out. Because what happens is we have this thing inside of us, and I've talked about this briefly before, this thing inside of us called entitlement. Entitlement says, I want, I need, I earned, or I deserve. Entitlement, by the way, is entirely self-centered. Entitlement is all about what we need. Entitlement actually, it devalues others to our good. Entitlement destroys relationships, and it is actually a poison in our heart. And by the way, it's not just a millennial problem. It is a people problem, okay? Entitlement exists inside of us. And so we're going to see that Jesus, he's not actually concerned with how this situation is decided. So, so the guy comes and he says, Rabbi, I want you to divide this situation. I want you to figure this out. I want you to help me judge rightly. And Jesus says, yeah, I don't really care about that. But what I do care about is what's going on inside of you. And that's what he focuses on. He's more concerned with the man's soul than whether or not he ends up with the money that he thinks is rightfully his. So verse 14, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Arbitrator, interestingly enough. So he said, help, uh, the guy comes and says, Jesus, uh, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. That word arbitrator, it's the same exact word. Uh, He says, who made me a judge or a, literally a divider over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So notice something about Jesus. Jesus, I think in every right, could have offered an outright rebuke to the guy here. He could have came right out and said, because he is a discerner of hearts, right? So he could have came right out and said, I see what's going on inside of your heart. You need to stop that. But what he does instead is he takes it as an opportunity, a kind warning about what might go on inside of our hearts. This is kind of a general instruction to everyone that we, we need to be really, really aware of the things that our hearts lift up. And he, he focuses specifically on covetousness. Now, covetousness is, is uh, in the Ten Commandments, the commandment related to covetousness is the very last commandment. And so when Jesus is talking about this, and uh, let's be real, he's talking about entitlement, right? So covetousness, there's a, there's a root of entitlement inside of that. And, and so you're looking at something that doesn't belong to you, and you start to believe that it should belong to you. 
That's what happens. You're saying, that thing should belong to me. And so, so in the Ten Commandments, God, uh, Moses is up there on the mountain. He receives these from God. And the Tenth Commandment, Exodus twenty seventeen, says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, so covetousness, what it deals with here is emotion. Or, sorry, not just emotion, but motivation. So what's going on inside of the heart of a person? Notice that every single one of the other Ten Commandments, they all deal with action. Every single, so you shall not worship. You shall not make an idol. You shall not uh, commit adultery, right? These are all action-based, but this one is about what's going on inside of our hearts. And what we actually need to understand about that is that covetousness, when, when the 10th commandment, the very last commandment deals with motivation, what we're actually led to see is that motivation inside every other commandment that came before it. So what happens when I, when I steal something? Well, I, I've wanted something that's my, not mine, and I decide to take it, right? What happens when you commit adultery? I've wanted something that's not mine to have, and I take it. What happens when you murder? Well, I've, I've taken a life that is not mine to take. What happens when you don't honor the Sabbath, right? There's this day that's supposed to belong to the Lord, and you've taken it for yourself. Every, at the root of every single one of these is covetousness. And then, and then uh, Paul actually shows us that in the idolatry commandment, that covetousness, the tenth commandment, is directly related to the second commandment, in relation to idolatry, Colossians 3.5 says, Put to de- death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, 10th commandment, which is idolatry, 2nd commandment. He shows us right there how covetousness, the desires of our heart, actually could be pointing to an idol inside of us. That our entitlement, our sense of I want, I need, I earn, or I deserve actually points to something that our heart is crafting. So what do you do with idols? Well, you sit there and you craft idols. You take your hammer and your chisel or whatever it might be and you make these graven images. That's what God is talking about when he's saying that. And so, so when we're talking about the heart, when we're talking about covetousness, what your heart is doing is it's sitting there and chiseling, chiseling away at its own little graven images. So it's interesting, John Calvin, uh, he had this quote. He said, the human heart is a factory of idols. The human heart is a factory of idols. That all the time, our hearts are just working to pump out idols, idolatry, all over the place. And so Jesus, he's concerned for this man who comes and says, help me divide the inheritance. He's concerned for the other listeners in this situation. And so instead of judging the matter, instead of making a decision on the matter, what he does is he offers some general wisdom. Instead of saying what that person should do, what you need to do is look to yourself first. Look first to yourself. And this is like, this is good wisdom in general. Like, uh, whenever we're in a situation, whenever we're in a contest, whenever that we might even be in conflict with somebody, our, our tendency is to say, look at what they did. But, but Jesus is actually concerned often with, well, let's talk about you first. Take the, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see the speck in your brother's eye. 
So, uh, so I want us to look first to ourselves. Um, and I want to offer for us three self-evaluating questions when we encounter entitlement. Three self-evaluating questions for entitlement. Number one, I want us to ask the question, for what reason am I feeling entitled? So when I get into a situation where I feel like I deserve something, that I want something, that this should belong to me, when I get into that situation, I need to ask the question, for what reason am I feeling entitled? What causes this to happen inside of me? So maybe you go into your boss's office and you, uh, you decide that you're really frustrated with your boss. Your boss didn't give you something that you deserve or he treated you in a way that you don't deserve. Maybe you decide, oh, I'm going to take legal action against somebody, right? Or you just get into an argument with your neighbor, but no matter what it is, those are all situations in which there is a sense inside of us that I deserve something. There needs to be right done in this situation. And so you ask yourself the question, for what reason am I feeling entitled? The second question is this, what does my reason say about my priorities? So when I actually discover that reason, maybe that reason is we understand that this is not okay. But I'm not talking about what you know. I'm talking about what your heart believes. And that's what Jesus is saying too. All the people he's talking to, they know about the law of covetousness. They know that it's not okay to covet. But Jesus still has to tell them, be careful. Be on guard. Look at where your heart is is going because the reality is there is something inside of us that will believe this. That will believe if we have enough of it, then we'll be okay. Maybe, maybe it might believe something like these statements. And think about yourself as I read these statements. Think about even the culture around us as I read these statements and see if you find them to be true. Money is my shepherd, I shall not want. Money restores my soul. For wealth alone, O oh my soul, wait, for my hope is in it. I will try to get enough money, for its yoke is easy, and its burden is light, and I will find rest for my soul. Possessions are my rock and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Delight myself and stuff, and it will give me the desires of my heart. This is the message that this guy has convinced himself of, that this guy believes. And I want us to be careful, Jesus is calling us to be careful, that this is not the message that we believe. Verse 20, we have a but God moment. But God said to him, fool. So, uh, so but God moments actually occur various times in Scripture. And, uh, and what we see is basically the idea that you were once hopeless, but God did something to save you, right? right? He did something to help you. So, uh, so you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ Jesus, right? But God, being rich in mercy, he came to you and helped you. You were once hopeless, but God came and saved you. Now, notice, the same thing is not happening here. 
It's a very different sort of thing. We might say that it's happening if we examined it long enough. But this time it's a reversal. These are the but gods that we don't really like, right? So, uh, so you were prideful, but God came and humbled you. You thought you were right, but God rebuked you. You thought you could hide, but God exposed you. You think your money has your back, but God said, fool. So I don't like these but gods because they sting. They make me really uncomfortable. They hurt a little bit. They put me in a place where I'm uneasy. But I hope, I pray, we pray, many of us prayed this morning, in fact, in our prayer time, that God would do the very same thing to us. That in the midst of whatever idols our hearts are pursuing, idols that they're crafting, that God would wake us up, that he would actually say to us, fool, so that we might know that we're not following the things that he wants, that we're actually following, that we're pursuing something else. Like, I want to be comfortable and know that when I'm being an idiot, when there's, a, there's an idol firmly rooted in my heart, that God is going to wake up and say, he's going to say, hey, you're being a fool. Like, do I, ha- I, I hope I have one of these moments where God would be gracious enough to say, hey, dummy, wake up, see the problem. You're trusting in something that does not have any power. Verse 20 goes on. Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So God shows up and says, hey, guess what, man? You're going to die tonight. <laughs> tonight, I'm gonna, your soul is required of you. Your life is going to be gone. And you know all those barns you built? What are they going to do for you? You know, all that grain you stored up, all of that stuff that you saved, you had limitations, you could have gave it away, but guess what? It's not going to do anything for you now. Like if, so, so you know that the old evangelistic tool that uh, we use pretty frequently is, if you died tomorrow, where would you go? Right, right. That's like the question that we ask. We pose that idea to people. So if you died tomorrow, Jesus is doing this with this guy, essentially saying, hey man, if you died tomorrow, what is money going to do for you? Say you get in a bad car accident, money is not going to stop that other car from hitting your car. Money didn't say, let there be life. Money didn't knit you together in your mother's womb. Money doesn't hold your soul in the palm of its hand. Money can't cure the emptiness that is in your soul. Money can't even restore all that's lost in a broken world, right? Because the reality is we have enough money existing in the world today. We have enough resources today to make sure that everybody was clothed and fed and cared for, but we're not using it for that, right? Because everybody is using it for selfish gains. And money has absolutely no power over death. No power at all. So the big idea this morning, the big Jesus's big idea is this. If you expect abundance of life from wealth, you will never experience abundant life with God. If you expect abundance of life from wealth, you will never experience abundant life with God. And this is a dangerous place to be. 
to be seeking after something, to be pursuing something that has no power to do anything beneficial for your soul. This is actually why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven, right? Because, because rich people, they have a harder time recognizing their need, right? That's, that's a reality that exists. Hear me though, this is rich or poor, it doesn't matter. These things describe everyone. Both of us can approach money with this sense of entitlement. Both can think that money is the key to their security, the key to their rest, the key to their hope that the good life can be found in money. And the reality is both are going to be dead wrong. Because money doesn't hold our soul in its hands, and money has no power over death. So verse 21, Jesus says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus is saying, if you don't want this to be your story, if you don't want to be ruled by the idol of wealth, then here's the solution. Be rich towards God. Invest yourself in some real security. That's what it means to be rich towards God, that our livelihoods, that everything we are, our energy, everything we do is actually put towards Him, and our rest comes from Him. Our hope for a future comes from Him. So I I, want to ask a question. How do you become rich towards God? And there are four steps and some of them we keep bouncing back and forth between for a really long time. So, uh, so we'll talk about these. Number one, recognize how much you actually lack. So Romans 3, 10 and 11 uh, says that, that before God we are, are selfish, that none of us is righteous, no, not one. We have all gone astray. We have all turned away from God. That, <clears throat> that in the things that he wants for, for, for us, we actually have no hope of getting to him, Right? That's the, that's the idea. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That in ourselves, our own resources, the things we might be able to accomplish, we have no hope. We are lost and we are stranded without him. Number two, decide that you're going to hand ownership of your life and your money to Jesus. So Jesus, he stands offering us a free gift that we would actually have no hope of being able to achieve ourselves. This gift is the gift of approval before God. So that, uh, that we who naturally were enemies of God, who naturally were against God, who naturally were unrighteous, Jesus actually decides, I'll take the punishment for that unrighteousness. I'll take it on myself to give you an opportunity to be approved before God, and not just be approved before God, but be in a loving relationship with God, to be able to walk with Him. He just says one thing. He says, follow me. In other places, he says it like this. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. He says, trust. He says, have confidence in me. At the end of the day, start following me. So that's number two. Number three. This is one, the three and four are the ones that we're going to bounce back and forth between a lot. Three and four. Receive and constantly reflect on the riches that he offers you. So Ephesians 2, 7 says that, that Jesus, uh, that, that God being rich in mercy, he made us alive together in Christ. Yeah, so we are together with Christ, made alive, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, so that in the coming ages, 
he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That, that uh, just reflecting on this idea that we haven't even begun yet to see the, the, the innumerable riches that God wants to lavish upon us. God has riches and riches and things that he wants to give us, and so receive those. Reflect on that. God has achieved our salvation, and not only that, he has given us a promise of of new life, that we get to live together with him. We get to see a creation that is broken be restored. There are riches that he wants to give us. And I don't think we, I think we miss it sometimes. Probably... Because we are so comfortable with the riches that we have here. And number four, limit. So limitation, these are the small barns, right? These are the small barns. Limit some current use of your time, talent, or treasure to give it away under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So place some kind of limitation on yourself so that you can be able to give things away under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So this might look like uh, you could take one hour out of your TV time a week to serve someone in your neighborhood. You could spend less money on whatever your stuff is, whatever your things might be. You spend less money on that and decide to give it away instead. And by the way, I don't care if you give it to the church. I just want you to give it away because this, for me, is about a discipleship concern. So, so you might come up here and say, Pastor, you just want us to give, give you our money. And that's not what I want at all. And you're not going to do that anyway. So, no, uh, but, but what I'm saying is this is not about this church. This is about your discipleship. So maybe you spend less on something to give it away instead. Maybe you work a few extra hours a week so that you can actually have more money to give away. So maybe you're looking at your current budget, your current income, and you're saying, yeah, I don't actually have the possibility to be able to give something away. Um, Maybe you find some way to do a little bit of extra work that could enable you to give something away because it's good for you, because it makes you rich towards God. Maybe you increase your tithe by a percentage point. Maybe you use your skills to help someone that you know is in need. And by the way, if you have the skill of empathy and listening, those are tools that you can use to give to somebody in need, right? Those are important and helpful tools. Maybe you just need to spend time with somebody. But our comfort and our security tends to be in, the thing, in being able to do the things that we want to do. And Jesus wants each of us to set our desires aside and take intentional steps to recognize that our money Our wealth, our things are not what hold our souls in their hands, but God himself is. And so that we need need to be careful not to treat these things like they can offer us abundant life because there is only one giver of life. We're being called to spend more energy investing ourselves in the one who actually provides this life. So what? First... um, I did not talk about this at all during the sermon, but this is one of the implications that we have to deal with today. First of all, do not entertain any kind of prosperity theology. Don't entertain it for one second. So so I want to tell you what prosperity theology is. Prosperity theology says, if I'm faithful, then God will give me wealth. 
If I believe enough, then God will make my life easy. God will make me materially rich. And any kind of teaching that goes this route is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus didn't die to make us rich here on earth. Jesus died to give us new life. Jesus died to give us a promise of being with God in eternity. Right, so, um, so when, when we say, uh, well, if I believe in God enough, he should give me the things that I want. When we say that, we're actually countering something that we were told to expect in the New Testament. Like, we were told in the New Testament, much of the New Testament, in fact, to expect that, like, suffering is going to come towards us. That, that things are going to be harder because we believe in Jesus. So, so if you ever hear me saying or hear anyone saying, hey, your life should be easier because you believe in Jesus, that's not true. In fact, we're called to die to ourselves, to take up our crosses, to follow him. And so when you hear anything that says anything along this line, that God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, I would say don't engage that anymore. Do away with it. The second thing is this. Uh, ask yourself, whose resources are they? So some of you may have said to the 28-year-old kid up here on stage, who are you to tell me what to do with my money? And I say, well, it's not my money to determine, but you know whose money it is. It's God's. It's God's money. He's the one who gave it to you. He's the one who created the situation for you to use it. And so, uh, so we have this opportunity to, to get these resources, to give them away, and he just wants to use them in a manner that's most faithful to him. The third one is this, and this is what I'm asking us all to do. I'm asking... Um, my family to do it as well. But make everybody, if you can, and I think we all can, make one consistent change in how you invest your time, your talent, and your treasure. So this is not me saying, hey, you have to do this because this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is me asking all of us actually to take a step of discipleship to take a faithful step of discipleship. What's one consistent change that you make? And we talked about a bunch of them earlier, but here's the reality. We all have the ability to change one thing. None of us lives in extreme poverty. In America, we actually have tons of opportunity, so we all have the ability to change one thing consistently. And even if you've changed other things consistently before, today, we still all have the ability to change one thing consistently. And so can each of us this week make one long-term change that will help us become impoverished to the world and rich towards God? So uh, in conclusion, even if you don't have a lot, this is still important. And I want to read to you uh, a passage about a woman who came to give an offering. And she didn't have much to give, but I want to tell you what Jesus says about her. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. This is Jesus. He's watching people bring their offering forward in the synagogue. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 
And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. She acknowledged by her very actions that her security is not in her resources, but her security is in God alone. So today, um, what's going to happen? I'm going to pray. Actually, we're going to sit and we're going to reflect on a song together. It's going to be up on the screen. Um, and then after that, I'll, I'll pray to close us. But at the end of our service, actually, we have our benevolent offering today. So um, what that is is an opportunity for us to bless those in need amongst us. And so there will be uh, ushers at the back of the sanctuary. And if you would like to give to the benevolent offering, that would be a really good opportunity to care for those in need. I'm going to pray and then we're going to reflect on this song together. Father, I ask that you would uproot the idol of wealth and possessions and money that exists inside of us because I would wager that to some degree or another it exists in each and every one of us. God, would you help us see how, the, how we can be rich towards you, how we can lift you up even in the ways that we use our money and in the ways that we use our time and the ways that we use our skills. Lord, would you undo us so that we might be firmly reliant on you and nothing else, that we might not be like this man who tries to rely on his wealth. Lord, but that we might let our souls rest firmly in you, that we might say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord restores my soul. I will delight myself in the Lord, and he will give me the desires of my heart. Lord, let our souls say these things, that we might be rich towards you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's reflect on this song together.